From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. The thoughts occurred to me, I wonder if you've had it too, that older parents, grandparents, are vulnerable to coronavirus. Coming up, advice from a geriatrician. Then, how so many women came to be incarcerated. Later, Mississippi wasn't the right place for musician Joe Johnson. Limited opportunities, limitless drugs. I had to decide between the life I was living and the life that I wanted to live. So I packed a backpack with a couple of pairs of clothes, a guitar. I tied a pair of boots onto the bumper of my friend's car and went to Colorado. And it's been called the best pork green chili in the state. Have you ever heard the saying, comida sin chile no es comida? Food without chili isn't food. That's right. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Doctors said it would be only a matter of time before Colorado saw its first confirmed cases of COVID-19. And that time has come. In a press conference Thursday announcing two positive cases in the state, we heard that at least 80 percent of people who get novel coronavirus have mild symptoms or none at all, which means about 20 percent are more severe and might require treatment for respiratory distress and dehydration. Here's Governor Jared Polis. We also know that older uh, individuals and immunocompromised individuals are at a significantly higher risk level. Uh, When it comes to most illnesses, and that would include coronavirus, and that would include the flu, and that would include many other illnesses. So should older Coloradans especially change their routines now? How can younger folks look out for older parents and grandparents? Well, Dr. Jean Kuttner is a geriatric specialist and chief medical officer at the University of Colorado Hospital. And doctor, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. I know that there are a lot of worried folks who have older parents. Uh, I'll just note the second case announced in Colorado involves an elderly woman who'd been on a cruise. You have a father in his 80s. Have you pulled him aside and said, you know, look, Dad, you should do X, Y, or Z because of coronavirus. Well, we haven't talked yet, but we're having dinner on Sunday night, so I'm sure that will be a, a big topic of conversation. And what do you plan to bring to a conversation like that? Well, I think it, it's the same conversation, actually, I'm having with my patients. I was in clinic yesterday seeing patients in my general internal medicine clinic. The things to do to prevent exposure to coronavirus are the same things that we should be doing all the time to prevent exposure to infections. So washing hands, avoiding being around people who are sick, and then if you're sick yourself, not going into public places where you're going to be potentially infecting other people. I think, you know, now with it being both in the middle of cold and flu season as as well as with this new infectious disease of the COVID-19 or coronavirus, I think it's really heightened awareness of those needs to be thoughtful about how we're keeping ourselves free from getting exposed. Do you think that there are particular steps that older people should take? Should they be more reluctant to go outside, um, to be in large crowds, something like that? Yeah, I actually think people should get outside. That's good for you to get outside, get some exercise. Uh, But I do think being aware of where there are large crowds, so anytime that there's a large gathering of people, I think being thoughtful of, is this something that I really need to go to? 
Uh, but then again, we also don't want people to be isolated and, and in their homes and, and not be doing their usual social activities. So being thoughtful about it and weighing those potential risks, I think, is, is what's most important. A balance there. We know that residents of a Seattle-assisted living facility have been under quarantine because of an outbreak there. And we do know that when older people live together, their susceptibility to these kinds of illnesses is higher. What extra precautions should Colorado nursing home facilities take now? I think it is many of the same precautions that nursing facilities already take during flu season, which is making sure that all the staff have flu shots, first of all. And then I think in this case, making sure that if staff have potential exposures to other ill people, or especially if staff are ill themselves, they should not be coming to work. I think it's up to each facility, but things to consider as to whether to be screening or limiting visitors as well. This mm-hmm. is something that I think a lot of our healthcare facilities are looking at now, uh, given where we are with, with the coronavirus or COVID-19, is to think about limiting visitors who could potentially uh, spread disease. And then for the residents themselves is to be very vigilant of if patients are or residents are uh, demonstrating any sort of symptoms to being addressing those early on and not just sitting on them. I think, though, of how spread thin the nurses and workers at a nursing home can be. Uh, We've certainly heard of shortages of employees in some places. There's also the pressure to go to work in the very places you could render people more vulnerable, don't you think? I, I think there is that pressure, and we have to be thoughtful about what really is our role as healthcare providers. Our role as healthcare providers is to keep people as healthy as possible, and so that putting in place approaches so that we have contingency plans for staffing so that when people do uh, develop illness, that they can and should stay home and should be encouraged to stay home. I am asking uh, all of the medical experts we bring onto the program this question because I think we are so hungry for the answer. What is your sense today of the mortality rate of this coronavirus? It's actually a tough question to answer because the we've been seeing different data. And the issue with the mortality rate is you have to have a good denominator. So you have to know mm-hmm. if there's deaths, what was actually the denominator of the people who were infected. And the issue that we have with this coronavirus or COVID-19 outbreak is we don't actually have great denominator data because as actually as the governor said, many people who get infected may not even have symptoms, so we may not know how big that denominator is. So I'm actually not quite sure how to answer that question because I don't think we know the answer yet. Well, I think it's important to say when we can't answer questions. I appreciate that. I guess before we go, Dr. Kuttner, I, I look to my phone and the news on it. I look to, you know, the newspapers and the radio and my friends, and I'm looking for indicators of whether I should be panicked, whether I should be calm, whether I should be going to the grocery store and buying up the toilet paper. What is your headspace right now as a medical professional? Just share what that's like. I'm I'm curious. I think that we actually can stay calm about this. If you look at the actual numbers of the people across the U.S., that uh, have shown positive, even though it's increasing over time, 
the numbers are still so much lower than the number of people who have influenza in the state right this minute. And so our still our likelihood of getting influenza or a common cold is much higher than contracting coronavirus or COVID-19. So I think we need to be vigilant and thoughtful. And I, I hear conversations around work all the time now of, of I'm counting to 20 when I'm washing my hands uh, as everybody becomes more aware of the need to prevent spread of any disease. So I think people need to be vigilant in taking these measures, but I also think there is not the need for panic. And I have very chapped hands as <laughs> exactly. a result. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Dr. Jean Kuttner specializes in geriatrics. She's also chief medical officer at the University of Colorado Hospital. Most of the nation's prisoners are men, but in the last 30 years, the number of female inmates has grown 700 percent, although that has leveled off some. Professor Carol Neal is part of the Prison Project at Colorado College, which studies corrections and works with local prisons. Neal is a historian and has the long view of female incarceration, and welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Incarceration rates for women and men have both risen dramatically in the last few decades, but the jump for females has been more pronounced. Why would that be? Well, a lot of that has to do with broader factors in the culture. I mean, gender is the most long-lasting and apparently irremediable uh, gap in equality in world history. So um, it makes a lot of sense when we think about uh, upticks in women's incarceration rates that that has something to do with gender in the society more generally. If we look back across the history of uh, gendered incarceration, we see that different paradigms for the reason women get into trouble or the reason women are adjudicated and placed in carceral facilities has to do with um, the way the wider culture thinks about women. And since the uh, tremendous acceleration of incarceration in the 1970s and 80s as a result of the war on drugs, women have been rethought of in terms of the ways in which uh, they uh, make mistakes and then are corrected for those mistakes. So I think there are, there are a lot of reasons which have to do with deep social dislocation and poverty and education gaps. But but as far as those affect women, it has to do with big paradigms for why women do what they do. So are you saying that the reasons women are incarcerated today are not the reasons they were incarcerated, presumably yeah. at a lower rate in yeah. history? The, uh, yes. And also the reasons people are incarcerated are different. I mean, difference, differences in sentencing patterns and differences in the kind of crimes to which the law on which the law focuses have changed dramatically, and there's much scholarship indicating that that the war on drugs is a tremendous tipping point regarding who is incarcerated and why people are incarcerated. So to be clear, the war on drugs raised the incarceration rate in general and did so 
for women as well. Yes, but in the aftermath of it, it's been more recent that there's been a proportional tipping in the direction of women's incarceration. And that's a complex matter. I mean, if we look back across the long history of women's incarceration, and Colorado is a great place to do that visually and physically, because the first real women's prison dedicated to women in Colorado is right outside the wall of the original territorial prison, um, which became the Colorado State Penitentiary when the, the state became a state. And that facility, which is now the Museum of Colorado Prisons, has 30 cells for women in what is clearly a medicalized facility. In, 19, in the 1930s, women's criminality was understood to be a medical disorder, effectively, huh. and they were being retrained in that facility to be appropriately domestic, which would cure that, that illness, which was the involvement with criminality largely through relationships with men. So that's based on all sorts of assumptions about women at the time. Right. What are the assumptions made about women in corrections today that you think maybe 50 years from now will seem to us just as ludicrous? Well, I'm not sure they will seem as ludicrous. I think there's a tremendous amount going on about gender in this country now. We no longer have just two genders, right? Um, we uh, have a tremendous discussion about what the meaning of gender is and what gender fluidity might be. So it for historians who predict the future is a dangerous business. <laughs> However, we do know that cultural paradigms for the meaning of gender change. And I think that what we're seeing now in general is that women are treated more like men. There's, there's a lot of attention to differences in correctional facilities because there are fewer correctional facilities and they are smaller generally for women. Their programming is gendered to an extent but also does not necessarily have the variety that men's programming does. Okay, that's really important. Let's circle back right. to that. Yeah. The idea being that programs, activities in prison, uh, presumably, one, keep you occupied. Two, we know that most people in prison will get out. It's yes. important for them to have education and skills yes. and knowledge. You're saying those programs in general for women are more limited. Well, yes, and in the state we observe that. For instance, where uh, Colorado College is involved through its Liberal Arts and Correctional Facilities Initiative at La Vista and YOS, the Youthful Offender System Facility in Pueblo, which yeah. has both men and women, whereas La Vista has just women. Um, we are concerned to contribute a liberal arts voice to the possibilities for those individuals um, because that offers uh, an addition to the existing correctional Program. So what are you teaching at La Vista, for instance? At, uh, at La Vista, one of my colleagues in philosophy is now teaching uh, a writing and philosophical principles course, which is actually the first time that that kind of thing specifically has been offered there. So a liberal arts experience, which is not for credit, but which will be something that women can include on their resumes, and that's, that's good. What is the importance of the writing, do you think? Uh, the writing is really important. In my own teaching um, at the youth offender system facility I have a uh, I have classes of and my colleagues have had classes of both uh, males and females and I think the writing is important in a variety of ways it, it bespeaks full engagement with the material but it also gives individuals who have little voice a voice that they are in conversation with with 
great minds with people of the past. And in a different way, in their studies uh, of, of mathematics, they also practice writing and using uh, statistical material to make arguments. So I think writing is, is a fundamental form of self-advocacy, and that is in, uh, especially important for people who have been incarcerated. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and history professor at Colorado College, Carol Neal, joins us, part of the school's prison initiative. A recent federal report that came out in part because of an NPR investigation found that female inmates get punished for minor violations much more than men, uh, particularly black women. What kinds of things should the system be doing to improve conditions for female inmates? Yeah, that, that is a tremendously interesting report, and I have examined it. I, I'm not in a position really to assess the, the relationship between the state of Colorado's facilities and that report. But I would say in general that, that uh, women in the, in the long history of incarceration and the long history of Western culture are judged differently from men you know, we all know in this country that women are supposed to be good girls, or little girls are supposed to be good girls in elementary school, and that boys will be boys. And I think there are a lot of big cultural paradigms that are behind that. I was actually surprised to see that, though, because I, uh, uh, not being someone who uh, engages with the correctional system and not someone who's inside it, that was that came as news to me. So I, I trust the content of that report, and I think it, it demands examination. It's yet another reason that women in correctional facilities sh- should uh, be offered and are increasingly in the state of Colorado being offered opportunities to find their voice and to self-advocate. But as we've said, there's a gap there. It's one that you're trying to fill. Thanks so much, Professor, for being with us. Thank you. She's Carol Neal, history professor at Colorado College here in Colorado Springs, part of the school's prison initiative. Singer-songwriter Joe Johnson grew up in Mississippi, where he was immersed in blues and country. But it wasn't until he moved to Colorado that he found his own voice. And what a voice. I remember just shy of 17 Way back yonder in the tall pine tree Pretty little girl stole a kiss from me Down on the banks of the Morgantown Creek Johnson melds Southern blues and Americana for a rugged sound that's right at home in Manitou Springs, where he has lived for many years. Coming here was a way to turn the page on a pretty dark chapter. Johnson's latest album is Morgantown, and Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I want to put this delicately, but your name, Joe Johnson, is quite common. It makes it a bit hard to Google your music. Do you find that? Absolutely. My whole career. And my first name is Byron, and people ask me all the time when they find that out, why didn't you go with Byron Johnson? And I have literally no good answer. Growing up, I was called Joey or Joe, and uh, it just stuck. You know, I figure it's too late to change it at this point. Even though it could distinguish you from all the other Joe Johnsons. That's very true. I don't trust Byron Johnson quite as much as I trust Joe Johnson. That's kind of it, too. (laughs) Yeah. I think I've always tried to approach everything in life from 
music to regular, you know, relationships and interactions uh, in a very uh, matter-of-fact and normal sort of way. Authentic, maybe? That's a good way of putting it, Mm -hmm. too. Music seems to be in your blood. Your grandfather was a notable country music DJ and performer. How did he inspire you to play music? I was inspired to play music from as far back as I can remember. Uh, You know, I think at like 13 years old, I was learning bar chords on the electric guitar. You Um, just did an air guitar, by the way. I did. Yeah, that was was nice. It was pretty good. It was pretty accurate to scale. Uh, His music, the music that he made was more really true old school country music. And he made it from the 50s until the late 80s and early 90s. Didn't he play the Grand Ole Opry? He did. Wow. Many times, yeah. My aunt likes to tell the story of uh, going to the Grand Ole Opry with him. He always drove a Cadillac, and he pulled this Cadillac into the alley behind the the theater yeah. and just was walking in the back door, didn't bother to park his car anywhere in a parking space. He just left it in the alley, and she thought he was crazy. She said, what are you doing? There's no way they're going to let you do this. And he just walked right through the place like he owned it, and nobody ever said anything to him. He just just left his Cadillac parked in the middle of the alley all night long. (laughs) That is amazing, and they left it parked there for him. Yeah, Yeah, so the idea is if you act like you belong. (laughs) Exactly. You belong. (laughs) He was there to receive an award, and he was so annoyed by the fact that he had to drive all the way from Picky in Mississippi to Nashville to get this award. (laughs) (laughs) It was such an inconvenience to him. And he gets the award, and they load back up in the car, and they head back to Mississippi. And as they're heading south, it's wide open interstates. And he's my grandpa drove 90 miles an hour everywhere he went. What's his name? We should name him. B.J. Johnson. B.J. Johnson. Uh, B.J. the DJ. And any fans of old country music, if you're not familiar with his music, you're probably familiar with the song B.J. the DJ by Stonewall Jackson. By Stonewall Jackson. Which is about him. B.J. the DJ. You're living much too fast And if you don't change your ways Don't see how you can last He was a speed demon. He was, and he was hauling down the highway headed back to Picayune from this annoying award show. Wide open highways, and on the other side of the highway, both lanes are packed with cars. Everybody's going north. Or he, him and my aunt are the only ones headed south. Huh. They can't figure out what's going on. They stop at a gas station to get some gas, and uh, the guy says, you know what's going on, right? There's a hurricane rolling in tonight. It was Hurricane Camille, which was one of the most destructive hurricanes to ever hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast. So he loads back up in the car, and he drives even faster to get to Picking because he was a radio DJ at WRJW Radio. And he felt like the number one most important thing was for him to get on the air at the radio station so that everybody could get storm updates. So he drove about 100 miles an hour, gets to his house, throws out all the bags. My aunt, her friend, tells him to get inside, throws the award in the yard, and goes to the radio station and works all night long at the radio station. Our guest is singer-songwriter Joe Johnson. Coming up, his move from Mississippi to Manitou Springs, a way to save his career and just possibly his life. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Public radio is flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News. KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio. With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms. And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and KRCC. See the details at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We've been reporting all this week from Southern Colorado, telling stories about growth and development, energy and politics. We wanted some cultural flavor as well, which we're getting today. Coming up, a visit to a cramped, delicious Mexican restaurant in Colorado Springs. It's been in the same family for generations. For now, let's rejoin my conversation with Manitou singer-songwriter Joe Johnson. He's originally from the South. I really needed to get out of Mississippi. Uh, I was just starting to kind of get my legs under me as a writer and uh, performer I felt like I needed a kind of change of scenery. Uh, you needed room to grow. I, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother was here working a job as a land surveyor, so I came out to visit him and uh, just kind of fell in love with the place. And at that time, one of my dear friends who I'd been writing with for a few years, he passed away of an overdose, which was a real wake-up call for me and a lot of people around me at the time. Um, Were you using drugs at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty much, uh, I never, I don't, very few drugs I ever met that disagreed with me (laughs) when I was in my younger days. Um, but I needed to get to a place where I really didn't know people and I needed, I wanted to get away from that life. I hear so often that those who struggle with addiction talk about shedding an old group of friends that might have been you know, the sort of the wrong influence and finding something new. And it sounds like that's what you needed to do in moving to Manitou Springs. Yeah, that's yeah. what it takes for anybody to really do it. And that's not to say, you know, those friendships don't still mean something to you. But, you know, at the end of the day, I had to decide between the life I was living and the life that I wanted to live. And so, you know, I packed a backpack with a couple of pairs of clothes, a guitar, I tied a pair of boots onto the bumper of my friend's car, and we went to Colorado. Well, the night seems so long without you, and the day been hard to get through. Drugs I got myself on keep me depressed, darling. You're still gone. Cause you don't give a damn. You don't give a damn about me. Joe Johnson, once arriving in Colorado, you formed the band Creating a Nuisance, but that spelled new sense because you were creating a new sense of self. I do want to know about the first day in Colorado with that backpack and that guitar. What do you remember? Like it was yesterday, I remember it. We got to my brother's house. We visited for a while. 
I said, I'm going to go take a walk around and check this town out. If you've ever been to Manitou Springs, it's a really picturesque kind of town. Um, especially so charming. Coming, yeah, especially coming from where I came from. Yeah, I took a walk. I, I put, threw my guitar on my back and just kind of took a walk around. Immediately met a couple of folks kind of in the park and out on the sidewalks and saw a couple of people playing music on the sidewalk. So I figured that was acceptable here. So I started doing that. I started just playing on the sidewalks. and Just the, busking? Yeah, busking. And the first three places I tried to play, they ran me off. They said, no good. Get out of here. Huh. And uh, there's a, a shop called The Hemp Store, which is still in Manitou now. And that was the first place that they said, yeah, you can stay right here. Just set up in front and play. And I did that all day that day. And uh, toward the evening, a guy came walking by with his dog and stopped and said, uh, man, that sounds really good. I host an open mic up at this bar called the Ancient Mariner tonight. You should come by. And so I showed up to that open mic that night, played three songs, and uh, met the bass player, drummer, and keyboard player for what would become creating a nuisance. Your touch was like heaven to me. And you came when it showed. has the music scene of Southern Colorado changed in the 15 or so years you've been here? Uh, drastically. <laughs> when I first moved here, um, to be honest, I, I don't know that it was as cohesive a scene, for one. Uh, there was a lot more emphasis on cover bands and, you know, your bar rock band kind of thing. Uh, there was original music and a lot of people that I know now that I didn't know at the time were here. But when I first came, I, I thought to myself, there's like two original bands in this town. Wow. Again, there were more, but I didn't know them. I came from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is an original music scene. Um, it's close to New Orleans. There's a lot of original music that comes through. People that are touring to New Orleans that play there on a Saturday or Friday night will play in Hattiesburg on a Monday night. So you see a lot of just amazing original music come through that town, and all the bands in town play their own stuff and you know covers here and there, but it's really an original-based music scene. And uh, so when I started looking at that landscape, it was a little intimidating, I think. But from day one, I've always just played original music. And, you know, some bar owners, especially early on, would complain about that. And, you know, we'd do a gig and creating a nuisance because we played all original music and uh when we would finish the gig you know they'd say well we'd love to have you back but you need to learn some covers hmm. and say well thanks for letting us play we'll find somewhere else you know we were just dedicated no matter what to pushing forward original music and you're going to like it or else <laughs> we're going to keep playing it for you until you like it and that's what it takes you know now the colorado springs music scene is full of original music so many different styles, indie rock, indie folk, bluegrass, country, blues, rock. It's all bands making original music. You teach songwriting to middle and high school students in Colorado Springs. What are some of like the early lessons you try to impart for a first-time composer? Mm -hmm. The first lesson that I teach any of my classes is 
the song consists of a verse, a chorus, a bridge, and the lyrics have to rhyme. The second lesson is everything I just said is a lie. <laughs> there, <laughs> there is no right or wrong way to write a song. The point of writing a song is expressing how you feel inside. And that's really not up to anyone else to interpret but you. Oh, we're back to that theme of authenticity, Byron. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Well, I hate to leave you lying there. Hate to leave you crying. There's no way I'd ever want to make you blue. Cause I love you more than words could say. Oh, now how I wish that I Joe Johnson performs Saturday night at the Ute Theater in Sawatch. He also hosts a weekly songwriter showcase Monday nights at Lulu's Upstairs in Manitou Springs. One mile marker at a time, wondering where they're taking me. My producer, Exandra McMahon, grew up here in Colorado Springs, and she told me about the food at El Taco Rey downtown. My mom used to buy their tamales in bulk because they're that good. And it was always an event because we lived on the north side of town in Briargate. So it was a bit of a drive to come downtown and get El Taco Rey, but it was always so worth it. But Alexandra didn't know the story of the owners. So after what we thought would be the lunch rush, 3 o'clock, we stopped by and it was still packed. Everywhere we went, my dad always had a jalapeno in his pocket. Because if we stopped for a burger or something, he wanted to always have chili on his food. And now my dad has passed. I find myself doing the very same thing as carrying a fresh jalapeno with me. Judy Allen runs El Taco Rey with her sisters. Their parents, Eddie and Rosemary Aguilar, started the business in 1976. Eddie died a few years ago, but Rosemary is still involved. The restaurant is narrow, like a shotgun house. Judy and I sardined into a space between the cash register and the kitchen. Tell me, are these family recipes? Family recipes. If you come to our house, this is how we do it. This is our take. What year were you born? 1970. So this has been really most of your life. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. How soon did they put you to work? Oh, we've been working since we were real little. None of us ever got in trouble because we were always working. (laughs) You couldn't get in trouble. No, we didn't have time to get in trouble. What's the best thing on the menu? Oh, my God. Everything is, whatever you get is going to be awesome. But my favorite thing is probably the tamales or the enchiladas. Tell me about the tamales. Our tamales, my mom has been making these tamales since we were little kids. She started doing it at the church. They're just pork tamales with red chili. They made by hand and they're the best you'll ever find. What does a tamale mean to you? Love. It's home. It's just comfort. Tell me about your parents. I know your father passed recently. Yes, he passed away two years ago. And my mom and dad are, of course, the best parents anybody could ever have. Our dad was from the San Luis Valley. Our mom is from Gardner. On the walls in the dining room, lots of family photographs, including images of your dad. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you walk by those? Oh, my God. My dad was the, the bravest man ever. Bravest? Bravest. What makes you say that? Because for him, he only had a third grade education. And for him to open up a restaurant, he was a hard worker and a go-getter. Successful. I'm just so proud of him. He's What a legacy he's left us. So how many members of the family are still involved? Let's see, um, about seven. Wow. 
then we have employees on top of that. And is your mom still involved? Does she still give you thoughts about how to run the business? Oh, absolutely. It's hers. <laughs> this is her baby still, you know? Yes. And, you know, she still is still the owner, so we still have to run things through her, and which is, is right. Now, I heard there was some family intrigue a while back when your brother opened another restaurant. Uh-huh. What's this story? He just... This is Danny. Yeah, my brother Danny. Yes. He just opened up his own restaurant. That's all. There's nothing to tell. There's nothing to tell? Uh-huh. Your parents were okay with it? Yeah, they were happy for him. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about his place. His restaurant is is a little bit different from ours. Uh, we're better. <laughs> <laughs> that got but, laughter know, all over the kitchen. I'll tell you what, though. You know, there's business for everybody. One thing that our producer, Alexandra McMahon, noticed about your restaurant and has always noticed is it can feel exclusive. You're not open on the weekends. Right. The dining room is small. You, you've you never doubled, tripled, quadrupled in size. Right. Is there a certain exclusivity that you create that way, or is that just the reality of a family business, too? Well, we've been here a long time, so, you know, we have a, a huge clientele. But not only that, you know, we're Christians, so we want to put God in our lives on Sunday. So what's another reason why we're closed on Sunday? Because we go to church on that day. You know, and family is important for us. So on Saturdays, that's family time for us to be with our families and do things with either our church or whatever we want to do. A lot of the awards on the wall uh-huh. are local awards. Right. There's one. It's a national award from a little newspaper called USA Today. What did they give it to you for? It was for the best pork green chili in this whole state of Colorado. I mean, which is an honor. That's saying honor. something. It is. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about the place that pork green chili has. Not just at the restaurant but in families and culture. We had it for breakfast. We would smother our mashed potatoes with it, you know, instead of gravy. That was just our staple in our home. It's everything. Have you ever heard the saying, comida sin chile no es comida? Food without chili isn't food? That's right. Okay, I have it. I heard it today. Yes. Do you have a strong feeling about the hatch versus Pueblo chili debate? Yes, I do. Are you willing to go on the record about it? Yes, absolutely. Pueblo chili all the way. You're a Colorado gal. <laughs> yes. It's that simple. Hatch is good too, but Pueblo's just got it. Is that what you use here? We use Hatch here. <gasps> and the reason being is because we've been using the same company for years and years and years. And back then, we couldn't. there weren't companies who, who you can get it from. Much you know. less widely distributed right. the Pueblo chili. Absolutely. So now, you know, we've been with this company for years, so we stay with it. But preference for me is Pueblo chili. Are you surprised sometimes that you stayed in the restaurant business? I mean, I think it's so often that kids go, I'm not doing what mom and dad did. You know, people ask us that all the time. We didn't have the opportunity like there is today for college and all that. You know, we're not we're not young anymore. We're older. Um, so we just assumed we would just go into the family business. So it, it was a different time back then. It was a different time back then. How so? Just the emphasis on college? Um, the ability to pay for it? I would probably say both. You know, my parents had six kids, couldn't afford to go to college, send their kids to college. So we just, they had their business and so we all came to work for mom and dad and it's been successful. Are your kids headed to college? My kids are, yes. They're not at college age yet, but that's their goal. I'm gonna push them into that. I was gonna say, it sounds like mom has an opinion on this. Yeah, that's my daughter right there. This is my daughter, Isabella. I wonder what people's reactions are when they find out your family owns this place. I'm very surprised. 
They always tell me, oh, my dad loves that place. Is it a bit like being a part of royalty in Colorado Springs? Yes. <laughs> Everyone knows who we are. And everyone's always talking to my mom in the store, wherever we go. And it's, it's nice, but it's also kind of annoying because they're like celebrities. And we're at dinner and they end up talking to a customer for three hours, you know, so. <laughs> what should I order? Uh, being in chicharrone, that's, um, you'll love that. It's awesome. That's my favorite. I love it. So chicharrone, like the pork skins. Yes, but it's not like the, the dry stuff you get in bags at stores. It's different. We fry ours here. They're homemade. That's what I want. And they're amazing. You'll love it. I'm telling you, you will love that. Alexandra, I have to share this burrito with you. You're the one who turned me on to it. I know. I'm so excited for you to try it. This is a massive burrito, and it's swimming in green chili. Swimming. Alright, give me that fork. Boom. Thank you. Oh, I think I got some crunch here. Hold on. Oh, it's so nice to have the beans, and then that little bit, what did she call it? Succulents. And the green chili is not super spicy, but the heat kind of hits you in the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss this. And that red rice, yum. Oh, the rice is so good. El Taco Rey in Colorado Springs has been serving up tamales, pork green chili, and other delicious foods since 1976. Judy Allen is the daughter of the owners, Eddie and Rosemary Aguilar. She runs the place now with her family. There have been a lot of hellos this week. Hello to our new listeners on KRCC across southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. Now, though, a farewell to a voice that avid listeners will recognize. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Before Steph became arts reporter, she was a producer on our show. And before that, she was a ballet dancer, forced to retire because of an injury. In 2014, I asked her about that breakup with ballet. As much as I miss it and still dance some in the privacy of my kitchen, I feel like it was a good time to leave the profession for me. And I'm really excited about the things I'm doing now. Well, now Steph is moving on from CPR to another public radio station, and it's a chance to assess Colorado's art scene through the lens of her time here. Hi, Stephanie Wolf. Hi, Ryan. A story of yours that sticks with me uh, required you to hike a 14er. Altitude. Oh, yeah, I can, I can feel it. What brings an arts reporter to the top of Mount Elbert? Oh my gosh, that's such a throwback. It was actually one of my very first feature stories for CPR. So there was this Denver artist, Lisa Martin. She was on this mission to paint from the summit of every 14er in the state. And we decided that I really need to follow her to the top of 14er for this story, of course. So I had to physically prepare for it because I had never hiked that kind of height before. And I spent every weekend that summer hiking and hiked my first 14er about a month before reporting the story. And, you know, I didn't want the very first time to be with all my audio gear weighing me down. I love it. You trained for that story. Okay. In in the half dozen years you've been covering the state's arts scene, what are the big trends you've noticed? Yeah, I think a big trend locally is immersive art and the sort of various iterations of what that is. It's actually been happening in Denver for quite a while and 
arguably in the art world for centuries, but it seems like it's been bubbling up here the past five or so years. And I've, I've just been to so many immersive art shows, visual arts, theater, dance. And of course, what exactly is immersive art is still up for debate. Um, I'm also seeing more and more arts, arts groups tackling social justice issues in a really big way. And arts has been a window into social movements for a long time, but something feels different recently, like it's kind of becoming more core to some organizations' missions. And when you say immersive arts, that's where the audience kind of becomes a part of the show. I do feel like I've been attending more of those in Colorado lately. Yeah, like it becomes a part of the show or you feel like you're in the art piece yourself. You've also contributed to CPR's project Colorado Wonders. The community asks questions and reporters answer them. Uh, One of the most clicked on was everything you ever wanted to know about Belucifer, the demon horse of DIA. Oh my gosh, this was actually one of my all-time favorite stories to report, because not only did I get to learn more about the late artist who created this massive blue Mustang, but I also got to visit his former home and studio in New Mexico. His widow gave me a tour. Susie Jimenez invited me to see the Mustang Mold in her late husband's studio in Hondo, a rural town in New Mexico. Kind of the belly of the beast. If you want to climb in there, this is me ins- inside of Mustang. Inside. The arts beat for you has also involved the business side of things. Uh, all that goes into blockbuster shows like Monet. Uh, you've had a long-running series about artists' obsessions as well. One who creates mutant daisies with radiation, another who's obsessed with maps. But a story I'm obsessed with is about the anonymous prank caller Longmont Potion Castle. Steph, as you told us some years ago, he lives in Colorado and for decades has been recording his pranks, releasing them on albums like this one when he called a candy store. This is Detroit Energy. We're testing our heating today, so we're going to be turning your temperature up to about 110 degrees. Holy crap. Uh, That could be a really big issue. (laughs) Um, We're a candy store, and you will melt all of our candies. (laughs) He's a pretty elusive guy. I imagine, you know, to keep his identity a secret, but he gave you not one but two interviews. He did, and um, the first time that I met LPC, as he's known to many of his fans, was at a chain restaurant out in the Burbs. And I actually went with my colleague, Corey Jones, and I remember LPC ordered a veggie burger. And then we interviewed the prankster in the restaurant's parking lot. So it was a pretty surreal experience. And the second interview was done over the phone. And I'd actually like to share a bit of that conversation because it got edited out of the final story. And this is him talking about having so many fans. I'm honestly a little surprised that people like it. Even now, you know, at this late day, and I'm not trying to act like meek or anything. I just, I, I really am surprised when people care about it. Huh. Stephanie Wolf, our arts reporter, is leaving CPR. We're taking a look back at her time here and what her coverage tells us about the arts scene in the state. Um, even though you retired from dance in 2013, Steph, uh, you still got to do a lot of stories on ballets and dance across the state. But one thing that puzzles people is how you might show dance on the radio. Mm -hmm. This is a question you tackled in a project called Radio Dances. Give us a little of the background. Ryan, this project is so special to me because it solidified my love for audio storytelling. So this was back in 2014. The arts editor at the time, she saw a live Ira Glass event called Three Acts, 
two dancers, one radio host. And it was meant to be an experiment kind of mixing dance and radio storytelling. But he apparently also made a comment about dance itself doesn't really work on the radio. So we decided (laughs) to prove him wrong. And we asked local dance companies to choreograph 30 to 60 second radio dances. Yeah, I'd love to hear one of these radio dances. Oh, yeah. Let's actually, this is a radio dance called Hello, Blue Soul. And it was choreographed by Erica Randall. And it's inspired by a scene from the 1988 film Heathers, in which the main character has a sort of breakdown in the shower. It was only 20 seconds in a 90-minute film. I swipe my left foot across, kicking the water, slash my left hand against the curtain, catch my right shoulder, and rub my sternum counterclockwise. But I will always remember it. Swipe left foot, slash hand, catch shoulder, rub sternum. All in blue, I swipe across, I slash, I catch, I rub. Uh, We even asked Ira Glass for his reaction to our project. When we decided to put our show together, we were making a foolhardy attempt at something that no one wanted. And then I feel like Colorado Public Radio took it to the next level. I feel like you you <laughs> went further than we did. You saw our bluff and took it further. You trumped our card with a higher Trump value. And I, I, give, I have such respect for that. Wow, it's a big thing to impress Ira Glass. A lovely note to end on. Stephanie, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Saying farewell to CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf. Good luck in Louisville, Kentucky. And let's end on a musical montage from the many Colorado Matters holiday extravaganzas that Steph directed. I really can't stay. But baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been so very nice. So very nice indeed, (laughs) Diane Reeves, to have you join us today and kick off our holiday special. Happy holidays. What new traditions are you creating? We uh, go to my uh, cabin and burn Christmas trees. Well, there's a lot of bourbon. Uh, it's vegan. I am a redneck vegetarian. What do you remember about that first mass? That they needed a choir. <laughs> this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.